Hello, I'm Vlad Maximov, and welcome to this special edition of your active series on cohesion policy, where we explore the European Union's project to decrease the disparities between its regions and increase social, economic, and territorial cohesion. In today's episode, we have two very special guests joining, European Commissioner for Cohesion and Reforms, Elisa Ferreira, and Euractiv's very own economy and jobs reporter, Jorge Valero. Today, we'll look at how Europe's recovery fund, often described as an historic achievement, will work alongside the classical instrument of cohesion policy, and what are the challenges of implementing these giant money pots simultaneously. Hello, Commissioner Ferreira. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're looking at some of the biggest investment instruments in the European Union's history. Cohesion policy, the old-timer with a proven track record, and the new kid on the block, so to say, the Recovery and Resilience Fund, the RRF. The two are supposed to work in tandem and complement each other. However, some regional leaders have been warning of bottlenecks and overlaps. So the Commission is now reviewing the national plans. Is it difficult to connect the two instruments? You are touching upon an important issue. And in fact, the cohesion policy's primary role is to reinforce convergence among the European regions. And uh, the imbalances that already existed before, they will be even uh, more visible uh, after a pandemic because certain regions will suffer more, uh, others, uh, others recover faster. So uh, now that we have two instruments, the important thing is in fact that they work in a complementing way, on a complementary way, because they are very, very powerful. Uh, and certain member states will double or triple uh, their annual capacity to invest. So uh, if I would uh, summarize it in a, in a very simple uh, kind of concept, I would, I would uh, say that it would be very silly if uh, these two instruments wouldn't uh, recognize each other. Uh, not to overlap, of course, and we'll be very, very attentive to this, but to, to make this convergence rebounds of the, of, of, of the economy uh, on new bases, on more resilience, uh, on, uh, on more future-oriented, on a better, with a better relationship with the environment, to make this, uh, this recovery uh, also a more cohesive one. So I would say that, okay, RRF or the Recovery and Resilience Instrument is more uh, centralized, is more uh, short in terms of timing, but it cannot lose sight of the territorial and social inclusion. So I would, I would summarize it, as I mentioned, by saying that it must take a do-no-harm principle to cohesion approach, because this will help them to be mutual reinforcing and so the convergence will be based on much more sustainable basis. And, uh, and this is our hope. This is what we are asking member states to do. And we are, we are hoping that the two instruments will really reinforce each other and make cohesion a more resilient strategy for the medium to long term in a coherent kind of uh, and, and very, very positive articulation with the, with the recovery plans. Well, that's a very tall order, but you also mentioned something pretty much uh, a perfect follow-up to my next question. 
is uh, the do no harm. And of course, one of the major changes in cohesion policy, this programming period, are the environmental ambitions and the targets. So is the cohesion policy ready to deliver on this completely new uh, or a rather much more ambitious green agenda? And are there enough green projects in the pipelines currently? Well, yes, uh, and we also have um, an instrument that is the technical support to member states. And we were very happy to see that, uh, that in fact, the digital and green were the first requests, the first demands from member states for technical support, for, for the, the commission to help them to organize technically the, the projects and even the public administration in such a way that actually we grow with a different kind of paradigm. And uh, this, uh, this idea, this guiding principle that we had to catch up, to recover uh, with a different kind of relationship with our environment became even more visible after the pandemic. And so uh, this aspect together with the digital, and I would add to it solidarity from a regional and social perspective, they are the ingredients for a recovery. And in fact, the regional fund, 30% of the regional fund on average, and 37% of the cohesion fund must be invested in projects that contribute to the European climate objectives. So focusing on green, digital, and overall sustainability is in fact something that is intelligent from the recovery and resilient plans and from cohesion policy. And of course, this, this kind of, uh, of objective will be even reinforced with the Fit for 55 package. It will increase the need to invest and prepare for this new economic paradigm. But if you look at uh, uh, the potential of growth that is associated, for instance, trying to give an example, to the renovation wave, imagine that we renovate all the public buildings or all the social housing with focus on making these places more environmental compliant, saving energy, introducing insulation, and making those buildings more comfortable for those that work, for those that live there. I mean, this can create a lot of business and it is a win-win situation. So this is just an example that we tried to, uh, to illustrate with a new, a new program. It's not a program, it's an idea, it's a culture. The new European Bauhaus. What we are trying to, to, to say is, uh, okay, let's focus on concrete things that people on the ground feel. Imagine that, uh, that uh, a municipality has to rebuild, I mean, a, a road or, a, or a, a neighborhood. Let's do it with these three principles. Make it beautiful, make it sustainable, make it inclusive and try to make our life better. So this is the new European Bauhaus, is something that is mobilizing a lot of young and less young people across Europe. It will be a culture, it will be a new way of, of making things happen. And, uh, and with all this uh, financing that uh, all countries will benefit from, I think we should really take this very seriously and implement our every pro in every project, in everything that we do, this new concept of being inclusive, of being uh, environmentally friendly, energy aware, and making it as beautiful as possible, because uh, this touches our soul and the 
it's it's no use to think only about money, about investment, also the quality of what we do, uh, the quality of our everyday life is important uh, for uh, for us as humans, eh? and we have got to be at the center of the agenda. Well, something that you said really resonated with me, and this is sort of being uh, closer to citizens, uh, bringing more tangible benefits like uh, the European Bauhaus wants to. And, you know, here at Euractiv, we have been trying to translate how cohesion policy is contributing to real change in the lives of European citizens, because sometimes it can feel very far away. And it often seems that the sheer volume of investments and their impact on the everyday lives of citizens gets lost in translation. Uh, it feels very far away, as if it's coming uh, from Brussels, even though the investments are happening on the ground. So what's your take on this? How can we better communicate the impact of the policy and show Europeans its achievements? Because sometimes it feels like there is a bit of disillusionment with it. Well, you are absolutely right. But that that also touches upon, uh, I mean, the technique of communicating. And uh, often we over-concentrate on big volumes of money and this uh, says very little to the, to the people on the ground they don't have in, uh, even the, the, the sensitivity to understand what we are talking about but if i tell you that for instance biontech that is that is this company that is providing our vaccines they benefited from regional development support uh, several years ago to settle and expand their their capacity to research if i tell you that uh, a lot of the support that uh, everybody received across Europe during this pandemic. I would quote, for instance, the, the, our mission, the, the, the masks. Uh, everybody received masks, everybody received uh, disinfectant. All the, the, a lot of hospitals uh, asked for support to hire extra people or to buy uh, ventilators. The, the, the restaurants, the hotels, the small companies, they benefited uh, from um, extraordinary support. And I would say that this was half a million small and medium-sized companies. Almost 3 million workers were supported. This was an exceptional support that uh, adding up all these investments, uh, and here I go to, to a figure, 23 billion euros. This is a lot of money. This is, uh, uh, this is really, I mean, a massive amount that was mobilized from the national envelope so that we could tackle the emergency situation. Uh, and now, if you research on, but a lot, a lot of citizens were not aware because also uh, member states, probably because they were uh, so stressed with this pandemic, they, they were not sufficiently clear that it, this was European cohesion funds that exceptionally were tackling the emergency situation. Uh, but of course, if we think about long-term projects uh, that really foster the development, it will be difficult for us to find, for in, in particular in the less developed countries, I mean, a road, uh, the treatment of water, the support to small companies, support to education, even with the computers that were also supported during this emergency situation. All of them, all of the, or almost all of them, uh, if, you, if you look carefully, they will have received or they, they are receiving some sort of support from the cohesion policy. Because, in fact, our concern is to go to the most backward the regions and in a partnership with member states to help these regions catch up 
because we are talking about an internal market, so pure competition, if these imbalances persist and we don't do anything about them, they will increase over and over. And then you, you just have people trying to immigrate internally uh, or even to immigrate to outside European Union in certain cases, looking for a job, looking for a life. So we really have, for the benefit of all of us, uh, to work very carefully with the tailor-made programs in order to support a catching up, a quicker catching up of the most backward regions of Europe. And um, there is massive progress if you look uh, all across Europe, particularly to those member states that joined later, but also to the, the previous ones. And you'll see the amount of work that, uh, that has been done in, in, in supporting them. Of course, it's long term. But in this case, we have a lot of examples of also short-term support. And this exceptional support is something that I think everybody will recognize. And when this crisis settles down, we'll be able to, I mean, to recognize and to value and to tell you how much work was done in support of citizens, of small companies, of, uh, of health infrastructures with the, the cohesion funds. And we'll go on. Uh, with a transition that will be really uh, something important. And certain member states are already using REACT to catch up, to, to support the catching up of the regions and the citizens that were more affected. So this is a work of persistence. But I, I think you, Euroactive, if you go to the detail, if you go to the ground, I think uh, you can find a lot of examples. And I can only thank you if you make them visible, because this is what we are trying to do, is that the citizens know that Europe is there for them and that during the pandemic we were really very, very active. And this is the reason why the situation was not more serious than it ended up uh, but uh, being, uh, because the forecasts were, were much worse. And now we have got to move from emergency to catching up, but catching up on different grounds. And that's what we are hoping that uh, companies, citizens, universities, uh, researchers will work on because we, we have the instruments for them and it's now up to them to use them in the best possible way. Well, that's, I think, a very uh, powerful message to finish on. I think what you particularly said about the fact that, you know, it's cohesion policy, it's not just about the regions who are lagging behind, but it's about everyone else, because if they don't catch up, we all lose out in one way or another. So thank you so much for, uh, for joining us today, Commissioner Ferreira, and, and delivering that message. Hopefully it will be heard. Thank you very much for your interest. And please keep supporting cohesion policy because citizens need it. Thank you. So, Jorge, we've heard the commissioner say that the two instruments are supposed to work together. Um, what's your take on this? How realistic is it and what are the challenges ahead? Well, um, of course, in an ideal world, um, this should be as um, two mutually reinforcing instruments, which is, I think, more or less the, uh, the label, the expression that uh, the commission uses. 
But uh, there's going to be many challenges ahead uh, in terms of absorption, in terms of the number of projects uh, that uh, cohesion instrument and the recovery and resilience facility uh, will be able to use. And also in terms of the political discussions that we're going to see over the next uh, six years around each and every disbursement of the uh, facility of the recovery instrument, because uh, hopefully we won't uh, go back to the Troika era when we suffer very long euro groups uh, to approve each of the disbursements, uh, for example, in the case of the Greek program. But there's going to be discussions uh, around uh, whether Spain progressed in implementing its labor market reform or Italy made the same in um, reforming its judiciary system or France with this uh, uh, spending control framework and accordingly they deserved to receive the recovery fund uh, money. There are two points that are relevant for, um, let's say, the interconnection uh, between cohesion and the recovery, recovery fund as a whole and the recovery and resilient facility, uh, which is the bulk of the money in particular. And is uh, the risk of double funding and uh, something that you already uh, touch upon in, in your studies, uh, Vlad, uh, the, 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 the risk of uh, not having sufficient projects. And of course, these two problems are interlinked because as we have seen in the past, actually, with the, with the Juncker plan uh, during the previous mandate, when precisely uh, in a similar scenario, the commission was also uh, trying to uh, stimulate the European economy by picking uh, high-risk projects that otherwise wouldn't be financed. When you spoke with uh, EU officials and, and uh, experts and also people from the private sector, one of the challenges was precisely the lack of, of uh, projects that uh, would meet this criteria. And the amount of money uh, that uh, Europe is mobilizing in a very short period of time represents also a challenge in terms of absorption. Because, for example, if you look at Spain, forget about uh, financing uh, these big infrastructure projects because basically Spain is already built. Uh, when you look at airports, when you look at um, roads, uh, highways, um, high-speed trains, of course, I mean, there are still uh, more projects to do, but the, the, the bulk of the infrastructure, it's, it's made. In some other countries, for example, Poland, this is, this is one of the areas where they, ha they want to progress. And actually, uh, during the bilateral summit between uh, Spain and Poland, uh, one of the priorities of the Polish government was to... to uh, let's say, interchange uh, and share uh, knowledge and experiences with, with the Spanish government, with Spain, in terms of uh, their experience with, uh, uh, with this big uh, cohesion project that they did in the 90s. Uh, but considering that uh, countries like Spain and Italy are going to receive the, only in terms of grants, Spain is going to get 70 billion uh, euros. It's going to be quite, uh, yeah, as I said, challenging uh, the absorption of the funds.
And uh, we already know, even from the previous programming period, you know, uh, at least uh, on the cohesion policy side, absorption has been going down, um, you know, compared to 2007, 2013 period, they're slower at actually spending the money, even though, you know, um, <laughs> we're now into the new programming period and they'll have to start closing projects in a, in a year and a half. Mm. So... Um, well, actually, um, because of uh, the uh, creed, they'll be able to do it for slightly longer. But but that the point still stands. And do you think this is going to be a bigger problem in some areas than in others? Um, I'm mainly thinking about green projects. You know, now Cohesion is going to have 30% going to green stuff. It is uh, 37, correct, with uh, the RRF? Yeah. Are there physically enough green projects to finance in Europe? Yes, and um, take into account that uh, one of the core principles of uh, the, the green strategy is the do not harm principle. Uh, Europe is taking this principle very seriously. I mean, it's embedded in, in the RF uh, legislation. It's basically take, uh, shaping the whole uh, taxonomy framework. Uh, will I guess, I assume it will be part also of the green bond. So this is a very core and solid principle of, of the green agenda for Euro. And of course, I mean, uh, by using the taxonomy, uh, this is going to limit uh, the kind of projects that, that member states can finance. So yes, and, and there's been already analysis made by, by think tanks, by organizations uh, saying that, in fact, only few capitals have met the 37% uh, a threshold of uh, green uh, green spending in, in the in the national recovery plans. So the commission disagrees. They say that uh, uh, all member states that have submitted the plan so far have met this uh, have met this goal, but we have to see once the project starts to be implemented. Mm-hmm. And you've mentioned the commission. Um, you know, uh, talk about there has already been. Uh, you know, an issue with the capacities and capabilities of the commission, even but with, with cohesion funding, it's been argued before that the commission doesn't really have the resources to to go in depth on the projects just because of the volume. But at least, you know, those structures have been around for for a while. Now, does can the commission create the, you know, the internal monitoring mechanisms to actually be able to, you know, to select uh, projects or rather approve projects correctly? Well, I mean, in terms of approving the project, that's something that has been done beforehand. I mean, uh, it's all the political discussion and negotiations that we have seen over the past months. Different thing is, uh, let's say, the approval of the disbursement of the funds, which is going to be something more similar to uh, what we saw during the Troika period, during the program period with Greece, Portugal, Spain, Ireland. And there... Uh, it's going to be rather like a political discussion. The commission will will assess uh, whether member states have met uh, the different um, goals and milestones, and then there will be a discussion among the member states in the economic and financial uh, um, committee uh, uh, at the council. But the control mechanism is not totally um, uh, identical uh, like uh, the cohesion uh, framework. If I'm not wrong, uh, in that case, it's more about uh, controlling the, the bills and the expenditure that there is no misuse of funds and all of that, which is also important in this case. But here is more about controlling whether milestones and, and targets have been met. Okay, so there isn't as much focus on sort of the process of the spending as there is on the outcomes from what I'm hearing. 
exactly. But of course, that doesn't mean that uh, the, the commission actually gave a lot of importance when approving the plans to uh, whether the national authorities had in place the appropriate uh, checks and auditing and control mechanisms to ensure that there was no corruption and fraud and things like that. Um, and on top of that, we have to remember that there are like three, four layers, European layers to control the appropriate spending of, of, under the Recovery and Resilience Facility. Uh, first, uh, of course, the, the new um, rule of law mechanism. Secondly, uh, the European Court of Auditors. Thirdly, the new uh, Public Prosecutor Office. And then you have the, the European Parliament through the Budgetary Control Committee. So there are several, let's say, uh, national layers that will add uh, more control to the role that the national authorities or, uh, or the national court of auditors could, could play. And in fact, in the, in the European Parliament resolution that, uh, that it was approved uh, last week, the Parliament asked for more resources for uh, these European instruments, for example, the court of auditors, so they could play a better role in ensuring that uh, there is no fraud or misuse of the EU funds. And in terms of, I mean, uh, it's it's reassuring to hear that, you know, there are a lot of layers, but these layers have been there before. <laughs> Perhaps, you know, the European Parliament's uh, role in this is slightly different, that, but surely the Court of Auditors and, you know, Olaf uh, have been there before. So... Um, and as we know, you know, European structures are not necessarily the fastest acting uh, institutions out there. In terms of the timeline, you know, all of this money is going to be have to be spent before 2026 uh, or by 2026, rather. That's that's very fast, mm. <laughs> um, especially for, you know, national authorities that have been struggling to find projects to begin with. Mm -hmm. So um, so do you think this is going to be a problem trying to reconcile reaching the targets with spending the money efficiently, but also, um, you know, meeting the, the rules and, and the strings attached? I will have to double check, but I think that, uh, in fact, uh, the countries have like one or two years, uh, additional years to spend uh, the money uh, after 2026. So, but still, I mean, it's, a, it's a narrow window. I agree. Um, secondly, uh, yes, I mean, certainly it's it's a challenge uh, because of uh, what we discussed. I mean, the assumption difficulties that they might face uh, because of the, the number of projects, because of the legal constraints of fulfilling the, the no harm principle and, and other requirements, plus the fact that they will have to implement also the big uh, part of cohesion fund, for example, and all these, while I mean, they face uh, other national priorities or challenges, uh, like I mean, coming out of the pandemic, and also I mean, the unexpected. So it's not only a question of the quantity. I mean, I think more if we if we wanna take a step back and look at at this recovery fund, which of course it's an unprecedented and very relevant historic instrument. If we take a step back, it's not about the quantity, whether they will be able to absorb it, but it's about the quality. Because 
if uh, member states, especially southern member states, who were pushing for having this kind of solidarity mechanism for years, this fiscal capacity uh, for, for, for years, uh, if they fail to make, make, you, make a good use of the instrument, um, forget about having a similar fiscal central capacity uh, for uh, in the future to, to complete the Economic and Monetary Union, which is something that Southern Member States, European Central Bank, European Parliament, Commission have been calling for uh, for years. Because then the Frugals, uh, Netherlands, uh, some German voices, uh, Austria, Finland will say, you see, I told you so. When you had the opportunity, you failed big time. That's a very good point, to be honest, that I, I haven't necessarily uh, heard before that the stakes are that much higher because, um, because this is an historic moment. And as it goes with historic moments, uh, if, uh, if you fail to take advantage of them, it can be, you know, it's a double-edged sword. It can be used against you, too. And this is exactly the argument I think we've been hearing, you know, in terms of cohesion policy for years now of, you know, well, it's supposed to be bringing these places closer um, but is it actually doing that? Are we achieving what it's supposed to be achieving? Or are we just, you know, checking boxes? Uh, and uh, I think that, you know, those are have been the arguments coming from the frugals as well about cohesion, you know, uh, corruption, uh, misuse of European funds. All of these arguments have been circulating around. And now that we've had, we have more money and more targets to meet, there are that many more uh, opportunities to, to sort of, you know, point everyone's nose in it and see, as you said, yes. as you see. Yes had an opportunity and you missed it yes exactly well um let's hope that doesn't happen um as the saying goes the hope is the last thing to die and that's certainly true in the european context as well yeah, optimism is a moral duty <laughs> that's it that's it and unfortunately, this is all we have for you today. To find out more about the latest developments in cohesion, take a look at our regional policy coverage at Euractiv.com. This has been Vlad Maximov. Thank you for listening. And until next time. This podcast is part of Euractiv's project, Let's Meet Cohesion Policy, a journey through regions, challenges and success stories, funded by the European Union. This publication reflects only the views of the author. The European Commission is not responsible for any use that may be made of the information it contains.